Hi everyone, this is Brian Lane. I'm an infinite master and I publish on PathfinderInfinite.com. And just like I don't want you to let the rules rule you, I want your player characters to have a say in who oversees the settlements they adventure in. That's why I created VoteFinder, a supplement for Pathfinder 2nd Edition that allows your characters to participate in local elections and support the candidates that can help them in their adventures. VoteFinder includes a subsystem of campaign activities and a table of candidates that each offers a unique benefit to your PCs if they get elected. You can find VoteFinder on PathfinderInfinite.com. Rise of the Rule Lords uses trademarks and or copyrights owned by Paizo Inc. used under Paizo's community use policy. We are expressly prohibited from charging you to use or access this content. Rise of the Rule Lords is not published, endorsed, or specifically approved by Paizo. For more information about Paizo Inc. and Paizo products, visit paizo.com. And as always, don't let the rules rule you. Smell that? That's the scent of a new and improved edition of Pathfinder. Well, it's not exactly new, but it is improved. It's Pathfinder Remastered. And who am I? Well, I am your revised, rearranged, and remixed Rule Lord Pete. I am so excited to finally be able to talk about the remaster with you. Paizo was kind enough to send me a review copy of Player Core and GM Core, and my special edition books arrived today. We've been getting a lot of information about the remaster from Paizo blogs to staff spoilers, and then in Rage of Elements, which gave us a pretty complete list of terminology changes. So what is the remaster, and how does it impact you? Well, the answer is it could impact you a lot, or not at all. The Pathfinder remaster primarily came about by necessity. However, unlike when D&D 3rd Edition went and became 3.5, it wasn't because the rules were broken and the game didn't function. In fact, Legacy Pathfinder is still completely viable and works great. Rather, a wizard on the coast decided to betray a sacred oath. Luckily, instead of taking it lying down, a ragtag group of orcs rose up and defeated the wizard against all odds. Of course, I am talking about Ardax the White Hair and the Orcs of Belkson's defeat of Tarbafan, also known as the Whispering Tyrant, at the Battle of Nine Broken Skulls. What else could I possibly be referring to? However, that is to say that Paizo is moving away from the OGL and instead adopting the Open RPG Creative License, something that uh, they, as well as many other game development companies, came up with to have a perpetual license to be able to publish their content. But that means they had to essentially remove every single thing that could possibly fall under the Open Gaming License. Functionally, Pathfinder is the same 
If you know how to play Legacy Pathfinder 2nd Edition, you also know how to play Pathfinder Remastered. While there are many changes, both in gameplay and terminology, the core gameplay remains the same. The three action economy, traits and conditions, feat-based character creation, it's all the same. For veterans, there's just some things that we're going to have to get used to, like Flatfooted is off guard now, Attack of Opportunity is Reactive Strike, Wounded is very deadly now. Though it technically always has been, we'll get to that. There are many content creators who have a play-by-play -play distinction between Legacy Pathfinder and Remaster. All of the terminology changes every single difference. That is not what this podcast is about. This episode of Rise of the Rule Lords Remaster is going to be an introduction to new players about Pathfinder 2nd Edition Remastered, or as I am going to start calling it, just Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Functionally, this is the version that we have now. These are the rules that new adventure paths, new Lost Omens books, and even third-party content is going to use. VTT Foundry has said that their core Pathfinder system is now going to be strictly remastered. Archives of Nethys is going to have a toggle, apparently, but everything moving forward is going to be about the remaster, and I'm okay with that. My review of the Pathfinder remaster is that it is better in almost every conceivable way. There is one very notable exception that I'll talk about, but on the whole, I am okay moving to this edition. However, if you don't want to, you don't have to. Like I said, Legacy Pathfinder is still going to be supported in places that matter. For instance, Foundry said that they're going to have a module that you can activate that still has some of the Legacy rules. And as I said before, Archives of Nethys has said that they're still going to have the legacy rules available. Nexus is still going to have all of the old rule books available. You'll still be able to buy them from your friendly local game stores, and Paizo certainly isn't going to send the Pinkertons after you to kick in your door and take your core rule books. <laughs> Who would do that? My main message is have fun in the way that you want to. Whether it's Legacy Pathfinder or the Remaster, it's a great game either way and definitely still better than 5e <laughs> before we get into it i wanted to do two quick shout outs first john figliomeni thank you so much for the surprise donation that you sent that was hugely appreciated i told you i was going to shout you out and i did so ha. if you also want to support the podcast you can do so in two ways the first is at ruler2e.com where you can send a financial contribution or on venmo at ruler2e or I have a Paizo wishlist in the description and you can enable my unhealthy addiction to this game. Secondly, I wanted to give a shout out to Draven, Cody the Mailman's son. Your dad owes you a hero point on your next game and you're awesome. With that, let's talk remaster. Hello and welcome to the wonderful world of Pathfinder. This is a fantasy TTRPG, but it can also take you to the lands of horror, sci-fi, mystery, but always adventure. While Pathfinder contains many rules, there is only one rule to which you must always abide, and that is the first rule of Pathfinder. 
This game is yours. Use it to tell the stories you want to tell, be the character you want to be, and share exciting adventures with friends. If any other rule gets in the way of your fun, as long as your group agrees, you can alter or ignore it to fit your story. The true goal of Pathfinder is for everyone to enjoy themselves. Or as we say it on this podcast, don't let the rules rule you. If any of the things that I say don't jive with you, you can change it, homebrew it, however you want. I am simply here to tell you what the rules are, not to tell you which rules you have to follow. So where, as a player, do you start? Well, probably with coming up with a character. No matter what game you're playing, you're first going to want to come up with a character concept. That is asking who you want to play, not what. Don't look at the ancestries, don't look at the backgrounds, and don't look at the classes. Instead, think who do you want to portray. Not just for this session, but next week, next month, possibly even next year. Ask yourselves questions like, is this person introverted or extrovert? Are they street smart or book smart? Are they selfish or altruistic? Do they consider hot dogs to be sandwiches? These are the important questions to figure out who you will be playing. Once you figure out the who, now we can get into the what. And the first question you're going to ask yourself is which ancestry do you want to play? Player Core offers eight common ancestries. Dwarves, stocky, stoic, but tough and wise people who came from the ground and worked their way up. Elves, long-lived alien from Castravel. Gnomes, especially small people with links to the first world. Goblins, former enemies, now forever friends. Halflings, small, humorous, and curious people. Humans, you're probably one of them. Leshies, nature spirits in the body of plants. Orcs, who fight hard but play harder. Most of these ancestries come with two attribute boosts and one attribute flaw, as well as a free attribute boost. And I am also going to stop saying attribute boost because it's a tongue twister. Henceforth, I will be calling them attributes. However, every ancestry also reserves the right to have two free attributes and no flaws. The first method will likely jive with players who want to test themselves. They want to work within the biological confines of the ancestry and see what they can come out with. This is a similar concept to Star Trek aliens, like Vulcans are strong and intelligent but lack charisma, whereas Klingons have strong constitution, can be very wise, but maybe lack some intelligence. Using the two free attributes are for players who think that their characters have no limits. No one is defined simply by their blood, rather they can rise to any occasion that they set forth. This is a very similar concept to the aliens in Star Wars, where it's really hard to pin just about any trait to any one alien. Everyone's scrappy, everyone has dreams and values, and there is always an exception to the rule. No matter which way you go, each of these ancestries also comes with a heritage. These are the traits that that ancestry was born with. These might be related to where that ancestry was born, like the cavern elf gaining dark vision, or relate to the environment that they were raised in, like the winter orc treating extreme cold as one degree less. Or sometimes that's just the way that they are, like Leshy is getting to choose between everything from cactuses, gourds, to seaweed. You might forego all of those 
those heritage options to instead choose a versatile heritage. These are when an ancestry is born in a more, let's say, unconventional way. The first option available is the changeling, born to a coven of hacks and carrying mysterious powers. There's also the nephilim, born of either celestial or fiendish parentage. Ayuvarans are when ancestries mix with elves typically from humans. Similarly, Dromar are mixtures of orcs in another ancestry. And if none of those spark your fancy, you could even create your own custom mixed heritage. For example, if you wanted to become an unholy mixture of Leshy and Goblin, you can do that. Once you choose the two ancestries, you'll gain both traits from those ancestries, such as the Leshy and Goblin traits. You'll also get low light vision if either parent ancestry had low light or dark vision. And in this case, even though the goblin has dark vision, your unholy hybrid would have low light vision. You wouldn't choose one of the heritages available to either parent ancestry, so you wouldn't choose anything from goblin or leshy, but you would get to choose ancestral feats from both goblins and leshies. So our gobleshy could choose harmlessly cute at first level as their first level feat, and then at fifth level choose kneecap, a goblin feat. How this abomination of God and nature came about, that's up for your backstory. However, because they all have the uncommon trait, you need to get your GM's permission to run it as well as work with them to see what fits within the bounds of their game. Now that we have our ancestry pick, we get to choose our background. Your background is what your character was doing before they became an adventurer. You can be anything from a scout to a street urchin, a farmhand to a field medic, be a barrister or a bandit. You likely won't interact much with your background except for where it relates to story beats, but your character will forever hold the skills and knowledge from that background. A former bounty hunter will always be trained in survival as well as the legal lore skill, and they also gain the experience tracker skill feat. This trained skill, lore, and skill feat will still play out through the rest of the game, so choose wisely. Each background also comes with two attributes. The first, you'll have to choose between one of two options, like the bounty hunter would have to choose between strength or wisdom, but the other one is always free to do with as you want. Now we get into our class, the meat and potatoes of this game. Your class fills in the remaining questions left on your character sheet. What are your initial proficiencies? What is your perception like? Your saving throws, skills, attacks, defenses, spells, and class DC. No matter which you pick, each will come with a key attribute. This is the attribute that you will want to really concentrate on because it's the one that will affect most of your abilities most of the time. Each class will give you a set attribute based on what your key modifier will be. Some even let you choose. Player core comes with eight core classes. The bard uses performance and occult magic to uplift their friends and viciously mock their enemies. The bard's special ability are their composition spells. These allow them to cast a renewable form of spell called a focus spell using their performance skill. The benefit to this is that they can use an ability called refocus to be able to gain that spell back, whereas other spells are usually lost once you use that slot. They also get to choose a type of muse, the enigma, maestro, polymath, or warrior muses, each giving them their own special abilities. Clerics have the power of god and anime on their side. 
a religion-based spellcaster, very adept at either healing the living or harming the dead. Clerics choose a deity, either one based in the Galarian world or one that you might homebrew in your own world. These deities provide a sanctification, making you either holy or unholy. From there, you'll have to follow your deities' edicts and anathema. Edicts are the principles that you live by. They're commands given by your particular religion that tell you what you must do. In the opposite vein are the anathema, things which, by your religion, you cannot abide by. These might be actions that you cannot do, and they may also be things that you cannot stand others doing. They then choose a divine fine, either healing or harmful gaining four additional spell slots each day at your highest spell rank just for either of those spells. Then you choose one of two doctrines, either the Cloistered Cleric, who specializes in their deity's domain, or the War Priest, who focuses on both magic and battle. Druids are a wise nature-based spellcaster. They are particularly adept at either making animal friends or turning into them. Each druid picks a druidic order from animal, leaf, storm, or untamed. The order you choose gives you a skill, a druid feat, an order spell, and a particular anathema. Though for all druids, it is anathema to despoil natural places, consume more natural resources than you require to live comfortably, or to teach wild song to non-druids. Then there's the strong or dexterous fighter. They fight, and they fight real good. They have a special, coveted, and feared ability called Reactive Strike. Fighters get to use Reactive Strike when a creature within their range uses a manipulate action or a move action, makes the ranged attack, or leaves a square during a move action it's using. This means that as long as they're in range, they get to strike out when people use many spells, interacts like standing up, or pulling out a weapon, or drinking a potion, or doing any number of other things that your GM will find infinitely frustrating. In any case, if a foe does that within the fighter's range, they get to make Make a free strike outside of their turn. If the action that they are striking against was a manipulate, such as a spell, you get to interrupt that on a critical hit. This strike also doesn't count towards your multiple attack penalty, which we'll cover in a second. The powerful and nimble ranger is a master of the wilderness. Though not as connected to nature as the druid, they still find themselves more at home in the wild than in a city, and even make friends with animals. The ranger is a master at hunting their prey, a special action available to rangers at the get-go. As long as you can see the prey, or we're already tracking them, you get to choose that single creature and focus your attention on it, gaining a plus two circumstance bonus to perception checks and a plus two circumstance bonus to survival checks, as well as ignoring the second range increment when using a ranged weapon against your hunted prey. The extra effect of hunted prey is determined by your hunter's edge. Flurry lets you strike at your prey with a reduced multiple attack penalty. Outwitting your prey gives you a plus one bonus to your AC against that prey, as well as a plus two circumstance bonus to deception, intimidation, stealth, and any checks to recall knowledge about the prey. Or precision, which gives you a 1d8 additional precision damage the first time you hit them in a round. The dexterous and skilled rogue knows how to do just about anything, and if they don't know now, they can easily learn later. 
Each rogue chooses a racket, the mastermind, ruffian, scoundrel, or thief rackets. The mastermind gives you bonuses to recall knowledge. The ruffian is particularly skilled with the weapons and armor that they're trained in. The scoundrel is very good at lying, and the thief knows how to hit you where it hurts. Every rogue knows how to sneak attack, which is when a creature is off guard to you. As long as you are striking with an agile or finesse melee weapon, an agile or finesse unarmed attack, a ranged weapon, or or a ranged unarmed attack, you get to deal an extra 1d6 precision damage to that creature on a successful hit. And as you level up, that damage increases too. Rogues also get to have a surprise attack if they roll deception or stealth on initiative, making creatures who act after you off guard. The Witty Witch is one of the most versatile spellcasters you can choose in Player Core 1. Witches were not born with magic, but learned it from a patron. The patron that honed the witch molded them to serve their mysterious purposes also grants the witch one of any of the four magic traditions. This makes the witch the only class able to cast from the nature, religious, occult, or arcane magical traditions. Their patron also grants the witch a familiar, a little fella, who follows you around and helps you out. Not only are they adorable, but they are also the housing of your magical ability, meaning that without that cute little kitty cat next to you, the witch is powerless. But when they are with them, they are a force to be reckoned with, gaining 10 cantrips, 5 first rank spells, as well as a chosen spell from your patron. Witches also learn how to hex, a special kind of focus spell available only to the witch. And finally, the wise wizard. The wizard is a master of the arcane arts, holding a repository of spells in a spellbook. Every day, a wizard looks over their spellbook and decides which spells they want to cast. Their list of known spells may far outreach the number of spells they can cast per day, making them by far one of the most powerful and feared spellcasters out there. Each wizard studies an arcane thesis. These theses grant the wizard a special array of powers, including experimental spell shaping, improved familiar attunement, spell blending, spell substitution, and staff nexus. Being students of magic, wizards attended an arcane school, a actual wizard school, like good ones, not ones run by transphobes. These schools give the wizard access to their first set of spells and cantrips. They range from the school of Ars Grammatica, the school of battle magic, the school of boundary, the school of civic wizardry, the school of mentalism, the school of protean form, or the school of unified magical theory. Wizards also create an arcane bond with a certain item, giving them a free spell slot to cast a spell that they have already cast that day without spending an additional spell slot using the drain bonded item free action. Choose one of these classes. From second level, you can either continue to play purely this class or choose an archetype. These can be multi-classes of any of the other classes or a special archetype, which we'll likely see in Player Core 2. But let's go back to character creation, now that you've chosen the class that you want to be. Because now it's time to do math! We need to go back and start building your attribute modifiers using your attributes from your ancestry, background, and class. Each attribute counts as a plus one to the modifier for that attribute. Strength is the attribute to hit things real hard. It also allows you to perform physical feats. Dexterity is the attribute to keep you from getting hit. It allows you to be nimble 
as well as perform various acrobatic feats. Constitution is how well you can take a hit. There aren't a ton more feats that you get from Constitution, but you'll be really glad you put points into it when we get to death and dying. Intelligence is knowing the best place to hit. It'll greatly improve your ability to recall knowledge on a wide array of subjects, as well as let you learn new languages and craft stuff. Wisdom is where you ask, why hit? This will improve your ability to heal, as well as to connect to both religion and nature. Finally, there's charisma, the skill that teaches you how to hit on others. Charisma allows you to perform, lie, negotiate, or intimidate. You'll likely want to fill up your class's key attributes. You can do this to a maximum of four, but only one from each area that grants you an attribute. So you could add one attribute from your ancestry, one attribute from your background, one attribute from your class, and one of the free four attributes that you get at the end. Did I not mention that before? You get four free attributes. Don't forget that. But also remember, if you took the biological determinist approach, you need to apply the attribute flaws as well. So, let's say that you're a gambling gnome ranger. From the ancestry, you would add an attribute to constitution, charisma, and take a flaw to strength. You also get a free attribute. So we're at one constitution, one charisma, minus one to strength, and we get to place one somewhere else. Let's say dexterity. Now we go to our gambler background. First, we need to pick an attribute to either dexterity or charisma. Because I'm thinking I'm going to take this ranger into the more ranged weapon approach, we'll choose dexterity. Now I have a free attribute. Though I'm leaning into a dexterity weapon build, strength is still important when calculating damage. So I'm going to put my free attribute into strength just so I don't have that negative anymore. Finally, the ranger has a key attribute of either strength or dexterity. Now I could double up on dexterity, making it the most powerful stat possible. But because I only have one more chance to upgrade dexterity or strength from the four free attributes, I'm going to put the key attribute into strength. This gives me a plus one to constitution, a plus one to charisma, a plus one to strength, and a plus two to dexterity. Now I have the four free attributes. So you guessed it, dexterity is where the first one's going. Then I'm putting the next one into strength so I can keep that weapon stat up. Because I want to be able to take hits pretty well, I'm going to put another free attribute into constitution. Finally, I'm going to put my last one into intelligence, because I want this ranger to be pretty skilled at a lot of things. In total, that gives me a plus three to dexterity, a plus three to strength, a plus two in constitution, a plus one in charisma, a plus one in intelligence, and a zero in wisdom. Because who needs philosophy anyway? Says the philosophy major. <coughs> now that I've selected all my attributes to put at boosts, we go on to the rest of the modifiers. If you use a character creator like Pathfinder Nexus, it'll do all of this other math for you. But if you're using pen and paper like real gamers, am I right? You'll want to put your attribute modifiers into each space where it's listed on the character sheet. For example, perception is wisdom plus your proficiency plus any additional modifiers. So my ranger with a zero wisdom will be pretty good at hunting things but not fine 
finding them. I'm not going to do all of the math here for you, but let's go over the other things that you'll find on your character sheet. Arguably, the three most important boxes to keep an eye on are the Fortitude, Reflex, and Will Save boxes. Your Fortitude will tell you how good you will be at resisting physical effects, things like diseases or hazards, or being crushed by a Groot slang. Who knows? This is where having good constitution points will really help. Your Reflex score will tell you how good you will be at avoiding things. So if things are thrown at you, how well you'll dodge. Or if a trap springs, how well you'll get out of the way before whatever happens happens to you. You'll want to have good dexterity for this stat. Finally, there's Will, which will tell you how good you are at resisting mental effects. These often come from spells, or special abilities, or even hallucinogens. So already, I can tell that my ranger will be pretty good at fortitude, really good at reflex, and have pretty garbage will. So my group really better hope that I don't get mind affected. Your hit points will be calculated by first adding the initial hit points from your ancestry, and then whatever your hit points are from your class plus your constitution modifier. So my gnome ranger will have 8 from the ancestry plus 10 from being a ranger, then an additional 2 from my constitution modifier for a total of 20. When I reach second level, I'll add 10 plus my constitution modifier to my original score. So that'll be an extra 12 points for a total of 32 hit points at level 2. Finally, there's speed, which I'll get from my ancestry of 25 feet, as well as perception. Speed is how many squares I'll get to move during combat. It may also impact your exploration, which I'll talk about in a little bit. In this case, 25 feet means I would be able to move 5 squares on a map. Each square is 5 feet, so the more multiples of 5 you have, the further you're going to be able to go. Most creatures move 25 feet, though notably, the elf is really fast at 30 feet, and the dwarf is pretty slow at 20 feet. Perception is the one role that you will probably utilize the most in your entire Pathfinder career. Perception is how you're going to find things like secret doors or obscure items, as well as sense motive on other characters. It's also the role primarily used for initiative when rolling in encounter mode. The higher your perception, the better chance you have at going first or at least before any of the bad guys. The last thing we'll add up are initial proficiencies. These are the skills and other abilities granted by your background and your class that you are already really good at. Proficiency has five levels. First is untrained, giving you a plus zero, because you don't know what you're doing, obviously. Second is trained, giving you a plus two to any skills or abilities that you're trained in, because you know what you're doing. Followed by expert, giving you plus four, master, giving you plus six, and legendary, giving you plus eight. Your class is largely going to determine how proficient you are at any given thing. Your background, as well as certain feats, might grant you extra proficiency where your class wouldn't. So for example, as a gambler, I am already trained in deception. However, your class is going to determine how much proficiency you have in perception, your saving throws, certain skills, attacks, and defense. You'll also also be trained in your class DC. Your class DC is kind of the catch-all DC, meaning difficulty class. If your GM can't figure out a good skill or a good DC to roll against you, they'll probably just ask about your class DC. Once I've factored in all of my proficiencies, then we get to adding things. But wait, there's more! Many of these abilities, 
especially your armor class, shield, and weapon strikes, will be determined by the type of equipment you're paired with. Many of these boxes include spaces for item bonuses. At first level, the primary item bonuses that you'll receive will come from weapons, armors, and shields. For instance, since my ranger is trained in medium armor, if I purchase a hide armor, I'll be able to add a plus 3 AC item bonus to my character sheet. AC is your armor class, and it's one of the most important stats that you can remember. Armor class is determined by adding a base of 10, plus your dexterity, plus your proficiency, plus an item. So, with a dex of 3, a proficiency of trained, giving me a plus 2, as well as the item bonus from hide armor, I would add 10, plus 3, plus 2, plus another 3 giving me an AC score of 18. And now we get to finally finish the character sheet. Do all of the math with the initial proficiency. Choose those special options provided by your class. Make sure to add your feats from your ancestry, as well as any special things that you get from your background. Every character starts off with 15 gold pieces, or 150 silver pieces. So do some shopping, get a weapon, get some armor, maybe even get the class pack, and then, holy crap, you have a character! Yay, good for you! Now before we start playing, we need to go over some basics of play, which we'll do right after a trip to the Wares Wizard. And we're back. So now you have your awesome character. You know your saving throws, you know how well you hit, you know your skills, your edicts and anathema, you've chosen your deity, your age, your gender, your pronouns, your class you see, your hero point. Hero points? What are hero points? Well, at the start of every session of play, every session of play, characters receive one hero point. That hero point can be used to re-roll any one non-fortune effect roll, or you can spend all of your hero points to avoid death, which we'll talk about in a second. So we're at the table, and we have our dice in hand. You do have some dice, right? Don't worry, any local game shop would have some, as well as there's plenty of apps with digital dice, and friends can probably loan you some. You do have friends, right? The first thing to know about Pathfinder are the three modes of play. The first mode, and honestly the one you'll spend the most time in, is exploration. This is the time that you spend in the world. This is talking to any NPCs. This is delving through a dungeon. This is simply going from point A to point B. While much of exploration mode will be spent doing roleplay, you're also going to do checks. Checks are the type of roles to determine failure or success. Depending on the situation, your GM will call for a roll. Let's say that my ranger wants to track a deer. The GM will say, roll survival. On my character sheet, I look at survival and see what the modifier is. I then roll a d20, a 20-sided polyhedral dice. You can't have gotten this far without knowing what a d20 is, but there you go. Once I roll the dice, I then add the modifier. After that, there are bonuses and penalties that I have to apply. There are four types of bonuses. Your proficiency bonus should already be calculated on your character sheet. As we also discussed, if you have any item bonuses, those are probably included too. You'll then have circumstance bonus and status bonuses. Circumstance bonuses are situational. They're not guaranteed unless you're using your circumstances and your character to the fullest. So for example, the plus two that I get from using Hunt Prey is a circumstance bonus. If I'm not using Hunt Prey, I don't get that bonus. Your team providing aid or finding a creature off guard are also circumstance bonuses. 
However, you can only apply the same type of bonus once. So, if I'm using my plus two circumstance bonus to survival granted by Hunt Prey, and then I have an ally who uses aid on a success that grants a plus one circumstance bonus, I can't also use that aid. I have to choose one or the other, usually the higher of the two. The same thing is true of status effects, which generally come from spells or magical effects. However, I can stack bonuses from different effects. So, I could add a bonus from an item, a bonus from a circumstance, as well as a bonus from a status effect. So, if a spellcaster were to cast Guidance on my ranger, that would give me a plus one status bonus to one attack roll, perception check, saving throw, or skill check. This means I can add all of my natural bonuses from proficiency, as well as the plus two from hunt prey, as well as the plus one from Guidance. I don't yet have any cool magical items, so I can't add any of those. But now I also have to add any penalties. For instance, being caught off guard is a circumstance penalty. Being sickened is a status penalty. Having a cursed item on you would be an item penalty. Penalties will be spelled out for you, but there are also untyped penalties. While circumstance, item, and status penalties work the same as bonuses, where you can only apply one of each type, usually the highest, all untyped penalties have to be applied as well. The most common of these types of penalties is the multiple attack penalty. The first attack you make with the attack action is always rolled at the highest degree. You still have to add any penalties, for example if you're sickened or doomed or whatever, but nothing else is holding you back. The roll that you get with your dice, your modifiers, and your bonuses is the highest that you'll get. On your second attack, you take a minus 5 penalty every time, with a few exceptions, such as having a weapon with the agile trait, which just reduces it to minus 4. Or in my ranger's case, if I had chosen the flurry hunter's edge, my multiple attack penalty on the second attack would be minus three only, or minus two with the agile weapon. Your third attack and onward takes the heaviest bonus, minus ten, or minus eight with the agile weapon. I will always have to add this untyped penalty whenever I make a second or third strike, including any other penalties that I have. But at the moment, my ranger has no penalties. Lucky me! So, once I compare the total roll with my proficiency added, with my status bonus from Hunter's Edge, plus the plus one from Guidance, my roll comes out to a 19. The GM then compares this to a DC called Difficulty Class. How my roll stacks up against the Difficulty Class determines my degree of success. If my number is above the DC, that's a success. If it's below, it's a failure. However, if my roll is 10 above the DC, that is a critical success. And similarly, if I do a minus 10 under the DC, that's a critical failure. Critical successes and critical failures often come with an additional bonus. These could be actual bonuses, or they could apply extra effects. The track action, for example, doesn't have a critical success feature because success means that I find the trail and follow the creature that I'm after. It does have a critical failure effect though, which is that I lose the trail and can't try again for 24 hours, while a normal failure only has a one hour delay. So you can see, it really behooves me to have at least a success, if not a critical success. You can also probably get critical successes or critical failures by rolling either a natural 20 or a natural 1. The reason I say probably is because rolling a natural 20 increases your degree of success by 1. Rolling a natural 1 decreases your level of success. Why would that be useful? Say the thing that I'm tracking is something very hard to find, like the god of the woods. 
at my current level, the DC is high. Even with all of my modifiers, if I were to roll a 20, I wouldn't reach it. In that case, every roll would either be a failure or very likely a critical failure. But if I roll a natural 20 and I'm looking for the god of the woods, if that roll would otherwise be a failure, it can up it one degree to a success. This means that my lowly ranger could hunt the god of the woods, but only if I'm very, very lucky. Most of the time though, in a balanced campaign, a natural 20 will result in a critical success. However, that distinction is really important, especially when the odds get in or out of your favor. It's worth noting that these principles also apply for armor class. However, when you hit someone with a physical attack, whether it's unarmed, ranged, or melee, a critical success doubles the damage, a normal success is just normal damage, and failure and critical failures are exactly the same, no damage. Now let's say, in the process of tracking, the GM asks for my Perception DC. How do I find that? That's nowhere on my character sheet. I have a Perception modifier, but no DC space. Well, this is really easy. Any DC can be calculated by adding 10 plus a modifier. So my Perception DC is 10 plus my Perception modifier. If my GM asks for my will DC, that's my will plus 10. They ask for fortitude, that'd be fortitude plus 10. They ask for survival, that'd be survival plus 10. You get the idea. The reason that they asked for this is because I'm about to get attacked. Because the stealth roll that an enemy made that I didn't know about because it was secret surpassed my perception DC, that means that they are sneaking up on me and I don't know about it. Once they attack, we move into initiative, and that moves into encounter mode. Encounter mode is the longest mode of play. This is because this is where all players, including you, as well as all monsters on the board, are going to make their attacks. The higher on initiative you are, the sooner you get to play. Often, you'll roll perception for initiative, but because I was scouting, the GM might allow me to roll survival for initiative instead. The GM might also call for a certain type of skill to be used for initiative depending on the circumstance. For instance, if I'm on a slippery slope, they might call for acrobatics to see how well I can keep my balance compared to all the other creatures on board. The choice is up to the GM, but usually it's perception just to see how alert you were at the time. During combat, or any encounter, every creature has three actions, a reaction, and a free action. Every action has a certain amount of symbols next to it, usually ranging between one, very often two in the case of spells. There are even a handful of three action abilities or spells that creatures and you could take. You'll be able to use your three actions on your turn. You very likely won't have access to your first reaction until after your first turn. This is because you weren't prepared for a fight. Your GM might grant it to you though if you were ready for a fight, like you're about to enter a room that you know monsters you're in. In playing the game section of player core, there is a space for basic actions. These are actions that every single character has access to. They are aiding, crawling, dropping prone, escaping, interact, leaping, readying, releasing, seeking, sense motive, standing, steps, striding, striking, and taking cover. I've already covered all of these in another episode, and for the most part, all of that information is still accurate, so I'm not going to go over it again right now. 
There is, however, one important caveat with the remaster, and that's with the aid reaction. To aid, first, you have to prepare to help out by spending one action on your turn. Then, when an ally is about to roll a check or an attack roll, you're able to use the reaction to help out. You have to say how you're going to help out to your GM. For example, let's say that my ranger is trying to help out the fighter reposition a foe. Their fighter already has the foe grabbed, meeting the initial requirements. Now they have to make an athletics check against the foe's fortitude DC. If I prepared an aid reaction, I would tell the GM that I'm going to sweep low with my bow to try to make the target off balance. The GM says, okay, so I roll my check. The typical DC is 15. It used to be 20. So I make my own athletics check against the DC 15. I roll a 25 because my ranger is just that awesome. At my current level, that means that I grant a plus two circumstance bonus to the fighter. Now that we know the bonus that I'm providing the fighter, the fighter makes their reposition roll. And hot dog, wouldn't you know it, that plus two bonus is exactly what the fighter needed to get a critical success on their reposition roll. That lets the fighter forcibly move the foe anywhere within 10 feet, as long as it's not into an obstacle. The fighter moves the foe into position so that the rogue can try to disarm them. Since the rogue doesn't have to move, they have that many more actions to attack and even disarm it. If the rogue gets a regular success on disarm, they'll get a plus two bonus to further attempts to disarm, and the foe will have a minus two penalty to attacks with that same item, and they'll continue to have that minus two until they use it interact to get a better hold on it. Interacting is a manipulate action, which means that the fighter can use reactive strike. Because the foe is also in between the rogue and the fighter, the foe is now off guard. Being off guard can happen for a variety of reasons, from being prone, to being surrounded on opposite sides, to grabbed, lots of different things. This reposition caused the foe to be off guard by being surrounded which gives them a minus two to AC when the fighter gets to use their reactive strike when they try to get a better grip on the weapon. So you can see how impactful just one simple action that isn't always hitting things with a sword can be. Teamwork is just as essential of a skill to learn as anything that's on your character sheet in the game of Pathfinder. Once you end an encounter or any challenge, your GM will reward you with experience XP. That is, if your GM is masochist and doesn't use milestone level. Regardless, once your character earns 1,000 experience points at any level, they level up. You then erase the 1,000 points. If you have a little bit extra, that remains. And then you earn your way back up to another 1,000 points to level up again. Once the encounter ends, you exit encounter mode and then go back into exploration mode or maybe even downtime. But before we talk about that, let's talk about if that fight hadn't gone so well. Let's say I didn't aid. The fighter wasn't able to reposition, and the foe had a good grip on their weapon. On their turn, they struck the fighter, and the fighter didn't have all that much HP left to begin with, so the fighter goes down. Luckily, at this point, they're not dead. They're dying one. Player characters don't die until they reach dying four. And it always gives me a little bit of a chuckle when people say, My player died. <laughs> I hope you didn't murder a real-life person in your group. This is where things get dangerous, though. When 
you die, you move your initiative to just before the creature that downed you. This is so that the creature doesn't have another automatic opportunity to be able to kill you until you've at least had a chance to make a recovery roll. Recovery rolls are flat checks. These are checks that you make just by rolling a d20 with no additional modifiers. The DC to beat on a recovery check is always 10 plus your dying value. So at dying 1, it's 11. At dying 3, it would be 13. And of course, you're dead if you reach dying 4. Unless you have a certain feat called Die Hard. It is even possible to get a critical success on a flat check. A natural 20 will always be above the DC for any dying value, and because all nat 20s automatically increase the level of success by 1, you'll always get a critical success by rolling a nat 20 on a flat check. If you do this on a recovery check, that'll decrease your dying value by 2. Now let's say that the fighter recovered, either by rolling a success or a critical success. They would become unconscious at 0 HP, and their dying value would turn to wounded 1. So they still can't do anything, but at least they're alive. That is, until an area of effect spell, like fireball. In fact, yes, unconscious creatures can do saving throws. Now, because they're unconscious, they're going to take a minus four to AC, perception, and reflex saves, which Fireball just happens to require. There are two types of saving throws, regular saving throws and basic saving throws. A regular saving throw will have any number of specific things happen on a level of success. It'll be different for critical success as it is from success, as it is from failure as it is from critical failure. A basic saving throw determines how good you do against a set damage. For example, Fireball does 66 damage if it is cast from a rank 3 spell slot. On a critical success, a creature will take 0 damage. On a success, they'll take half. On a failure, they'll take full. And on a critical failure, they'll take double. This means that our unconscious fighter has to make a critical success while unconscious to take no damage from the fireball. Any amount of damage that they do take automatically brings them back to dying. Here's where the rules start to suck. Hello everyone, it's Pete from the future. The same day that this podcast episode released was also the same day that the remaster went to street date, meaning the date that you could publicly buy the books from friendly local game stores. That same day, Paizo released Errata for both the player core and GM core, which made some pretty substantial changes. Most of them weren't all that surprising, just some typos, things that were left out, changes like that. However, later in this podcast, I am going to go into death and dying. Now, the critiques that I'm going to talk about are still valid if you're going to play the death and dying rules from the first printing of the remaster. However, those printed rules are also no longer the rules. Whether Paizo listened to feedback or made an honest mistake, it doesn't really matter. They changed the death and dying rules to be played the way that people have been playing it. The way that it is currently printed is still a clarification of the intended way that those rules were supposed to be played all the way back 
to the very first printing of the core rulebook. However, that's not how anyone played it, and now the rules reflect the way that we have pretty much always been playing Pathfinder, at least most of us. You still die at dying four. On the recovery checks, a success on the dying flat check still reduces your dying value by one, and a critical success still reduces your dying value by two. That hasn't changed. What has changed is that now on a failure, your dying value only increases by one. You do not add the wounded value. Same for critical failure, your dying value increases by two, and again, still don't add the wounded condition. If you take any damage while you're in the process of dying, your value only increases by one on a regular hit, or by two if it came from a critical hit or from a critical failure. Because yes, you still make reflex saves even when you're unconscious. Many of us have been playing this way from the start, and now this is how we're going to continue to play Pathfinder Remastered. While the first printing of the player core is going to be out of date with this information, luckily there are other ways that you can see these updated rules. First off, if you get a PDF copy of player core, eventually Paizo is going to release an updated version of the PDF. That is going to take a little bit of time, probably because unlike other sources, they have to also make it so that it matches with the book formatting. So they're going to have to do a little bit of arranging to make sure everything still fits. But eventually you will get a notification that your player copy has been updated and you can re-download it from paizo.com at no additional cost and it'll be right. Furthermore, any additional errata changes, the same thing will happen. But this is a pretty important one. One of my favorite sources, Pathfinder Nexus, already has all of the updates implemented though. If you purchase a player core from them, not only will you get a free PDF that you can redeem by linking your Paizo account, you'll also get the Nexus version, of course. I've said it many times, I love to read on Nexus. They're great for people who need assistive reading, great for people who just like digital reading or reading on their phones. Yes, it's a separate purchase, but also if you already own the PDF, you can get it at a reduced cost if you link your Paizo account. Archives of Nethys has not yet, as of the publishing of this podcast, made the remaster changes. However, they will be, and those versions will be correct as soon as they go up. Finally, all of these changes should also be on your VTT of choice. I know that Foundry has already made a number of big changes, and uh, those death and dying rules are included. I'm going to leave my critique part in because those are still valid critiques. I do not want you to play the way that it is currently written in the printed version. Rather, please play with this eroded version. It's going to be much more forgiving to players, letting them go down a lot easier, have more confidence that they'll be able to get up, and thus do more heroic things. Rules-wise, Death and Dying was literally the only critique that I've had of the remaster. Everything else, I think, has been an improvement across the board. So with these eroded changes, I believe that the remaster is 100 percent perfect, or at least as perfect as any TTRPG can get. It is the perfect version of Pathfinder. I'll say that. Three out of three hero points from me. So know that as you go into the rest of the episode that while I did have my concerns when it was first released, those have now been abated and this is a great addition to play. Okay, back to the show.
First off, the fighter moves to dying two from being wounded one, and then moves initiative before the creature that downed him. In this case, their friendly wizard. The DC is now DC 11 for the flat check the fighter has to make. So, let's say the fighter rolled below 12. Their dying value now increases by one plus their wounded value. It's this last bit that sucks. This means that the fighter, already at dying two, if they fail, to dying for instantly. They're dead. This is a thing I, as well as many in the Pathfinder community, cannot fathom why Paizo decided to do this. But then it turns out those were always the rules. So I'm just gonna step up on my soapbox here for a second. In the before four, Pathfinder players understood that if you rolled a recovery check, it would only decrease your dying value. This led to something that people have coined slingshot. If you were an extremely lucky duck, but unlucky enough to stay dead, here's how it would go. You'd go from dying one, you could go down to dying two, then dying three, then recover to wounded one. Then, if you went down again, you would go from dying two to dying three. Then you could recover again to wounded two. If you went down again to dying three, you could recover to wounded three. Then, if you finally went down again, you would be dead dead. This circumstance does not take into consideration critical successes or critical failures. It's just if you you rolled successes on your dying checks. If you lost count, that is nine separate times that you could possibly save yourself from dying with nothing but dice rolls. That decreases dramatically with the remaster rules. Now I call these remaster rules because this is the first time that anyone realized that these are actually the rules as intended. It is perfectly fair to note that these rules were spelled out in Legacy Pathfinder. You can read it in the core rulebook though it's a little bit hard to find. You can see it on the Game Mastery Guide and in the Beginner's Box. But because the language was so buried, no one realized that that's how it was supposed to be played. The remaster clarifies this rule that has apparently always existed. So let's use a charitable example of the remaster rules for dying and how well you might survive. Remember, we're just using regular successes and regular failures. You could go to dying one, two, three, then heal up to one, and then go to dying two, and then you're dead. There is no dying three for you, there is just death. Because we have to add the wounded condition as well as your dying value. This means it's almost better to stay down, to stay dying, than it is to get back up to wounded during combat. Because let's say someone is helpful. You are dying one, and you are resuscitated. That brings you to wounded one. But then let's say you go down again. Then you are at dying two, and again, if you fail on the recovery check, you are just dead. Nine times has been reduced to four, or two if your teammates try to be helpful. In fact, as one of my players has pointed out, it basically makes dying conditions useless. It also makes being doomed less bad than being wounded. It's weird, but those are the rules as written. I will again remind you, though, that the first rule of Pathfinder is is to not let the rules rule you. If this rule system does not suit you, you can change it. I personally will not be using this in my games unless my players want to try it out, in which case I guarantee they will not like it and will go right back to playing how we always have. Okay, stepping off my soapbox for just a couple more things. If you're wounded still by the end of the fight, there are two ways to lose the wounded condition. 
First is that someone restores hit points to you specifically with the treat wounds action. That means clerics casting heal or bards casting soothe does not get rid of the wounded condition. However, they could get rid of wounded if they also restore you to full hit points and you rest for 10 minutes. But there are two other dying condition things that we should go over. First is heroic recovery. I mentioned this earlier with hero points, but if you spend all of your hero points even if it's just one, you can lose the dying value entirely and just become unconscious with zero hit point. You also will not gain the wounded condition. This is one possible viable way to survive with the remastered dying rules. As long as your GM is consistent handing out hero points once an hour as they're supposed to, you could still survive these encounters. Keep in mind though, you do have to spend all of them. Meaning if you have all three hero points saved up and you go to dying and you want to get out of it, you have to spend all three of them at once. The other cool thing is called massive damage, which is if any one single strike does double your total hit points, you are dead dead. No chances at recovery, just gone. The third mode of play is downtime, which I'm gonna kinda skip over because I generally only see players use it for long rests, which is one way that you can get out of the wounded condition or many other different conditions, or to earn income. There's other things you can do like crafting, but that's for another podcast episode. And that is how you play Pathfinder. There's a lot of other things that I could talk about, but I'm not going to right now. Things like area, the particulars of vision, all of the other conditions, all of the other actions that you can do. And I will, just not this time. The remaster has me excited. I know I'm not a fan of the death and dying rules, and frankly, no one else is either. But there is a lot of cool things in this improved edition of Pathfinder. When I originally started the Rise of the Rule Lords podcast, I got into it kind of late into the game. There were already a lot of great content creators who were making things and had already covered things ad nauseum. But this is new. Ground floor. Many of the things are still the same, but there are just enough differences to justify covering things again. So I'm going to talk about the classes, the ancestries, the backgrounds, the spells, and I'm even going to finish the conditions that I was working on. And again, many of my past episodes are still 100% correct. There are just ever so slight some bitty changes. So if you're still curious about any part of Pathfinder, check those out. You'll still learn a lot, and it's going to carry over to the remaster. If you are hungry for Pathfinder content, and for some reason I'm the first content creator that you found when going on this search, fear not, there are many more that I recommend. The first is how it's played. Dave is a friend of the podcast. He makes a fantastic YouTube channel going over the rules in far more depth and eloquence than I can. There is also the rules lawyer. I know Ronald a lot less well, but he also makes fantastic coverage of Pathfinder stuff, though he adds a lot more commentary than Dave does. There are also a lot of newer channels that I want to plug that didn't exist when I made my first introductory podcast episode. Bad Luck Gamer is someone who I have interacted with a lot, been on his show, fantastic streamer, talks about the rules a lot, and is a big advocate for the community. King Ugatantan makes these delightful seven minute or less videos about the Pathfinder rules that I find are really helpful if you are someone who benefits from Spark 
notes. The Sly Strategist is also someone who is coming up as a great resource for both rules, tips, and commentary on aspects of Pathfinder. Goblin Salvage Rights, spelled R-I-T-E-S, has hilarious videos all relating to Pathfinder, as does Gust, who is a bona fide meme lord. Myth Keeper and The Lore Tour have been adding more content about the world of Galarian, the setting in which Pathfinder takes place in, if you play by those rules. There's even a VTuber now, Phoebe Bane, a delightful little goblin, and Cardinal Adventures and Alt Haven are great for just kind of general topic stuff. There aren't a lot of general Pathfinder podcasts besides mine, but there still are a couple that aren't actual plays. Tons of those. No Directions, Ryan and Jay, who helped me get off my feet when I was first starting, are now Esther and Navarsi Jackson, two excellent hosts and members of the Pathfinder 2E community. Somehow, all of these people are able to create content much faster and arguably better than me, so go check them out if you are really hungry for Pathfinder 2e content, but I am going to be much more active. I promise you, I am not going to get distracted by Tears of the Kingdom. Why, why, would, you, why would you say this? Anyway, go into the world, now with the knowledge of how to play Pathfinder 2nd Edition Remastered. If you want to be part of the show, like cool guy Brian Lane, community use policy voiceover by going to rulord2e.com and clicking send voice message. You can also email me at rulord2e at gmail.com with your voiceover or just send me mail. I really enjoy it. Also make sure to go to the r slash pathfinder2e subreddit for the best community to talk about pathfinder2e ever. And uh, go get the remaster if you haven't already. You won't regret it. Well, that's it for me. Make sure to subscribe on your local podcatcher so you can get more upcoming episodes of Rise of the Rule Lords Remastered. And until next session, I've been Pete, and don't let the rules rule you.